This is Docs in the Box podcast. A podcast about medicine, muscles, and more through the eyes of two physiatrists. I'm Dr. Amy West. And I'm Dr. Matthew Cowling. All right, guys, Docs in the Box podcast. Today we have Sam Apple. He's an accomplished writer and author of several books. His newest book, um, Ravenous, which we'll be talking about today, um, is actually the hard copy, I believe, is launching today. Um, there's recently an article about it in the CrossFit Journal that you guys uh, might have read. It's been getting a lot of um, pretty good hype. So welcome, Sam. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I'm interested. Maybe we could just get started. And could you tell us how you kind of got in- involved in the, you know, uh, fitness or health space or, you know, ketogenic diets and stuff like that? Uh, sure. I uh was interested in, in metabolism for, for quite some time. Uh, like many people in this world, I think that uh, reading Gary Taubes was, was definitely a big influence. Uh, I read his original article in the New York Times Magazine, uh, I think it was 2001 or so. Uh, what if it's all been a big fat lie was the cover story. And uh, so, you know, that, that had an influence on me, but then, uh, you know, I continued to sort of read other authors, uh, Nina Teichels and, and, and many others who have written about sort of this story that, you know, pretty many of your listeners are familiar with about how nutrition science and sort of went off the rails uh, quite some time ago. So I was interested in, in all that for some time, but um, really only decided to write a book when I began to learn about cancer as a metabolic disease and how cancer was, you know, related to some of these metabolic conditions that uh, I had thought were totally unrelated to cancer. Um, yeah. And so um, this particular book is both sort of like a health piece, right? You're looking at that aspect and you're also looking at some pretty cool history. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, you know, I was interested in, in whether cancer is a metabolic disease, why it shows up together with obesity in particular. So in reading about this, I, I started to read about you know, not just the epidemiology, not just the association between cancer and obesity, but also what's going on inside the cancer cell. And I discovered that, you know, sort of the, the seminal the finding in the field uh, was made in 1923 by a cancer scientist named Otto Warburg, uh, who was really a, a biochemist, he made a lot of interesting discoveries unrelated to cancer. But in 1923, he discovered that uh, cancer cells take up a lot of glucose and instead of burning it with oxygen, they actually burn, uh, they actually break it down without oxygen and, you know, ferment it. It's basically they're, you know, they're doing essentially the same thing that the yeast is doing in, in you know, turning grains into alcohol or bacteria making uh, yogurt. So it was really interesting discovery. And, you know, what I, what I tried to do in my book is try to understand what's going on with the cancer cell, why this strange metabolism and how does that relate to, you know, the metabolism of the whole body, what's going on with, with obesity and, you know, they're both connected in a way to overeating at some level, like obesity has something to do with how we eat and then a cancer cell overeats glucose and, you know, trying to figure out where the connection is. And something that was uh, interesting and I never really thought about it before until reading about your book is that, uh, you know, we don't really think about what any good things that Nazis did, but um, they saw cancer as sort of a threat to their society as they saw many other things and other types of people but um can you speak a little bit to how they how they sort of got involved in the in trying to figure out cancer yeah sure so i when i was talking about the history i i sort of stopped short but you know the 
one of the reasons I decided to write the book is, is because I was so fascinated by Otto Warburg's story. So he makes this amazing discovery in 1923 about how you know cancer takes up a lot of glucose and ferments it. And then, you know, he's one of the leading scientists in Germany in 1931. He wins the Nobel Prize for his study of cellular respiration. And then in 1933, the Nazis come to power and he is not only of Jewish descent, his father's Jewish, but he's also gay, not, not quite openly gay, but, um, you know, he, he lives with his partner. He's about as open as you can be at the time. So you have a guy who's in, you know, the worst possible situation you could be in in Nazi Germany with, with this background and yet, Ultimately, the Nazis protect him. And as you know, and this gets to what you're saying, why, why would they do this? And it's because the Nazis were deeply afraid of cancer. I would say, you know, it's fair to call it an obsession with the disease. And, and it is true. It's uncomfortable to talk about or to think about that they made some progress uh, in terms of cancer prevention and were ahead of other countries in, in some ways. And it's, it's not totally surprising because they inherited, you know, Germany had been the leading sort of scientific country in the world and they inherited a great scientific establishment even after chasing out a lot of, you know, brilliant Jewish scientists, they still had a strong scientific establishment in some ways. So, you know, the question is, you know, why were they so obsessed with cancer? And, um, you know, I, I can talk more about that if, if you would like me to, to go on. Yeah, so um, Hitler's mother died of cancer, is that is that right? And that was one particular interest for him? Yeah, it was clear that, you know, in some ways it came from the top. Hitler, first and foremost, you know, is because I think this experience he had with his mother as a teenager, he sees his mother dying of breast cancer. He's absolutely distraught. And, um, you know, his mother is apparently the only person he's capable of loving. And, and so it really weighs on him. And um, it's also kind of fascinating. The doctor that cared for his mother was actually Jewish and Hitler liked this doctor and they had a good rapport. And, um, you know, maybe in some ways that, you know, played into his psychosis. Uh, but, you know, he's clearly obsessed with cancer for, for many years. And so are a lot of the top Nazis. But it's not just that his mother died of cancer. It's also because cancer is growing more and more common in Germany. You know, if you look back at the cancer statistics, it's quite rare going into the middle of the 19th century. And then it gets more and more common. And, you know, it's commonly thought that, oh, the people just didn't live long lives. But if you actually dig in into the numbers and you you look at it closely, you see that it clearly cancer is on the rise. And I don't think it's, it's debatable. And, and so it had become an obsession. Like this disease had come out of nowhere over a 75 year period and was creating a panic among many Germans. And, you know, one of the things I try to figure out in my book is, you know, why, why was it growing more common? And, you know, can we explain that through metabolism? But, you know, the, the Warburg story really comes to a head in 1941. They call him into Nazi headquarters and it looks like it's the end for him. And they tell him, basically, we're going to let you live so long as you only focus on cancer. Uh, but, but part of this that, that's really interesting to me is, you know, on the one hand, it's true that the Nazis made some advances in, in terms of cancer prevention. Uh, you know, they were the first, for example, to make a clear association between smoking and cancer. But even when they were making progress in some areas, it was always through a very sort of dark and, you know, sort of twisted lens. You know, they, the way that I've come to think of the Nazi ideology is, is almost an obsession with impurity. And, you know, one historian, Robert Proctor, calls it like a almost like an obsessive compulsive disorder uh, where you know, anything that seemed remotely impure was bad. So any kind of disease was bad and Jews were bad because they were impure and homosexuality, homosexuality was impure. So they were fighting it. Cancer 
in, in other diseases as well, but it all played into their ideology of like, you know, perfect Aryan health and eliminate everything that's sort of counter to that, if, if you will. Now, when they actually, were, oh, sorry, go ahead, Amy. No, but did they, as far as, you know, they, they had some of these discoveries, did they enact any rules as far as like nutrition in their government and their society at that point? Uh, yeah, they, they actually, you know, they were, they actually had various regulations, you know, it, it varied from sort of province to province, but um, they had mandatory screenings, you know, decades before other countries. Um, they had, uh, you know, banning various chemicals and foods, you know, decades before other countries. Um, so, so they really, you know, put this stuff into action. Uh, smoking bans in some places, um, you know, <laughs> 50 years before anywhere else. Uh, so, um, yeah, they, they really did uh, put a lot of the stuff into action. In terms of food itself, they, um, they tended to, you know, Hitler was mostly a vegetarian. He, he broke that sometimes, but um, the thrust of their thinking was sort of anti-meat and, and more sort of pro-vegetarian. At one point, um, they were touting uh, soybeans and, and referring to them as, as Nazi beans. So, um, you know, partially they later on in the war, they had food shortages and, and that was part of it too. But, um, you know, they were sort of, um, you know, I would say early into kind of in the, what you would later became more of an organic movement. Uh, you know, one of the most chilling things I discovered is I actually had like a, an, an organic farm at one of the concentration camps where they were forcing prisoners to, you know, grow these organic foods. It was Himmler in particular was, was really into this. So mostly the experiments Warburg was doing at the time were lab experiments, correct? He was, and his, you know, findings, you know, we learn in medical school and everything about, you know, the Warburg effect and things like that. Was there any direct carryover to that where they started saying, hey, glucose is the problem or sugar is the problem? Or was there a big break from that kind of um, after he made that discovery? Yeah, you know, what I learned, I really didn't know this until going into the book that um, going into my research was that even before Warburg made his discovery, there had been some researchers out there who were suspicious of, of carbohydrates in the diets. You know, they do these rodent feeding studies and they overfeed them carbohydrates or they, you know, fast them or restrict calories. And, and they could see that even before Warburg made his discovery in uh, 1923 about cancer cells taking up a lot of glucose, there had been uh, feeding studies done in rodents, which made the connection uh, between glucose in the diets and uh, high carbohydrate diets seemed to favor cancer, whereas calorie restriction and fasting seemed to prevent cancer. So this, this association was known, but they didn't really have an understanding of what was going in on inside the cancer cell. Um, but I, I think it's important to point out that a lot of people think that, um, well, cancer cells take up a lot of glucose, therefore eating a lot of glucose is the problem. And, and I think that simplifies things too much. Uh, you know, what I sort of conclude of after, you know, years of research, and when I say research, I mean, talking to scientists, I'm not a scientific researcher myself, but that, uh, you know, the hypothesis that, that is most plausible to me is that it's the elevated insulin that, it, that is really driving this Warburg metabolism more so than the glucose itself. You know, there's always glucose in our blood. The you know, other sort of question is, you know, what changes in terms of our metabolism that, that allows, you know, cancer cells or any cells to overconsume glucose and 
I, I think it's a hyperinsulinemia. So then, the, you know, the question, of course, is you take it one step back, what, what's driving the hyperinsulinemia? And I, and I think more so than glucose itself, it's actually sucrose, the sugar, the table sugar, you know, half sucrose, I mean, half uh, glucose, half fructose that you see uh, really driving the hyperinsulinemia and in turn driving cancer. Yeah. So I think I was listening to one of Jason Fung's talks and he talks about, you know, the mTOR pathways and AKT and those things. And basically the higher, you know, your insulin levels, you're just driving, you know, excessive growth. Right. And so that that's very reasonable. And with that being said, I mean, that's, I think another implication when, you know, we talk about fasting, right. Fasting can have the same effect as eating a, you know, low carbohydrate diet, sometimes even, you know, better. So, yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. And also, thinking of cancer as um, in kind of like an inflammatory state, you know, like the way that we view obesity and all these other metabolic syndromes and the effect that the diet can have on those in a positive way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think there's really so much evidence now that that elevated insulin is driving obesity and driving inflammation and driving cancer that, uh, you know, I think of you know, obviously we all need insulin. If you don't have insulin, you're type one diabetic and you're, you're very sick, but when insulin gets dysregulated and you have elevated levels, you know, it might be 50 times normal at all times, day and night. And um, I think of it as a carcinogen, you know, any other carcinogen that, that looks that bad in our lives, we'd be terrified of, we'd, you know, put warning labels on it and try to stay away. But just in this case, it's in our, it's in our blood, you know, it, it's like a fertilizer for cancer is the way I think about it. Um, you know, other cells are growing resistant to the insulin. That's why we have insulin resistant. You need more and more insulin, but the cancer cells aren't, uh, resistant on, on the contrary, they develop, you know, more and more insulin receptors and, and they're sort of hyper receptive to the insulin. And that really drives the growth. And, you know, so now it's some, some of these ideas are sort of being talked about more than they have been in the past you know, 80 years, but. Um, so, so what happened, you know, so Warburg was working in Nazi Germany, making these discoveries and then, uh, you know, what became of his work, um, and, you know, what, and how did, and how did you rediscover it? Sure. Sure. Um, well, you know, one of the interesting parts of this story and, you know, one of the things that surprised me most is, you know, Warburg makes the seminal discovery, wins the Nobel Prize. He's so cherished by the Nazis that, you know, they protect him despite being Jewish and gay. And yet after the war, you know, his research almost completely disappears. Uh, nobody's interested in metabolism anymore by, you know, by the 19, late 1970s, it's almost completely gone from cancer science. Uh, you know, people told me literally about stories of, you know, taking the diagrams off the walls. And there's a lot of reasons, different reasons for it. It's impossible to say it was one thing in particular. It was partially, you know, Warburg was a real character, a real narcissist, and was kind of making extreme claims. And, um, you know, other theories of cancer were becoming more popular, you know, and then, you know, there was interest in the viral theory. And then ultimately, you know, they started identifying oncogenes and focusing on the DNA and the type of enzymes that Warburg focused on, you know, that was like, oh, you know, who cares about that? That's in your old biochemistry textbook. That's got nothing to do with the cool new, you know, cancer uh, science that people are doing now. So it, it just disappeared. It isn't even in textbooks. And you have this famous paper that comes out in 2000, the hallmarks of cancer, which sort of lists six basic, you know, aspects of, of what causes the transformation of cancer. And, and there's no mention of Warburg or this metabolism, but, but meanwhile, this, shift in metabolism is so fundamental 
it's literally the basis of a PET scan. You know, that's what you look at. You see where in the body the glucose is going up and that's a sign of cancer. So it's, it's such a fundamental thing and it just completely got lost. It, it really still blows my mind. And uh, it was rediscovered, you know, there were always a few people on the periphery, you know, that were interested in this stuff, but it was really rediscovered in a main way in, in the late 1990s when, you know, these cancer scientists that are sort of looking at DNA and sort of tracing these signaling pathways throughout the cell, they find, you know, wait a minute, these same pathways, these same oncogenes that we've been focused on about how they cause a cell to divide, they actually change how a cell eats. And, you know, they looked into this more and the whole sort of causal arrow starts to turn in a different direction. They started like, it actually seems to be the eating that comes first and the eating of the overeating of the cell that in, inspires the growth and the division. So, you know, it used to be thought that, oh, cancer cell divides and then the nutrients just come in as needed. But it, it's, I think it's the opposite in many, in most cancers that it, it's really the nutrients come in and sort of, you know, to use a metaphor that one scientist uses, you know, it, it sort of reawakens the cell to new possibilities once it can get all the food that it wants. We talked about this on the podcast before. There was a large time, you know, when we had things go in the complete opposite direction. And when we're looking at, you know, lowering fats in the diet and getting rid of saturated fat and that whole boom, you know, and that's responsible for so much of the sugar consumption and processed sugars that we eat today. Um, and then now we're kind of getting back to, to the actual, you know, facts and, and figuring out that those things aren't as bad. When you were researching this, did you... Um, find anything about that and how that may have skewed any research in terms of low carbohydrate diets and stuff? Yes, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I, um, I mean, there, there's no question that, um, you know, at the same time where, you know, everybody was saying that um, fat in the diet is responsible for cardiovascular disease and, and diabetes, they were also saying that, you know, fat was responsible for cancer. And then there was, you know, as in the other cases, there was you know, really no good evidence for this, you know, and this idea would come from these correlation studies where, you know, they, they said, well, people, you know, whatever, eat fast food and they get cancer it must be the fat and, you know, not paying attention to the drink uh, or the bun or the French fries. Uh, so it's just really bad science. There was never any reason to, to think that that was what was driving cancer, except for, you know, these rodent studies where, you know, sometimes you feed them these high fat diets and rodents can't really handle the, the saturated fat mice can't and it, you know, skews the results, but the, there was never anything compelling. And, and meanwhile, you know, as we've talked about already, there was this whole other body of literature, which shows, you know, that calorie restriction and high carb diet, high carbohydrate diets correlate with cancer and, and calorie restriction, you know, in, in, in these mice feeding studies seems to have a pretty dramatic effect. Uh, effect on, on reducing cancer. So I think they got off the, on the wrong path. And, you know, there was this villainization of fat. Uh, it was more in the realm of, of cardiovascular disease and diabetes, but it, it bled into cancer as well. And, um, you know, it, um, it really, you know, to this day, I, I think that, um, you know, it's not well appreciated in, in, in many medical circles that, um, you know, the high carbohydrate, high sugar, sucrose diet is what's driving the hyperinsulinemia and, and the metabolic defects. So. And as yeah. far as, uh, you know, these discoveries, are, are there people, were you able to connect with scientists who are currently working 
and, and the same ideas that Warburg was working on? Yeah, so they, you know, these, these scientists who, you know, starting really in the late 1990s, they sort of rediscover Warburg and, you know, they literally had to like take out some of these old sort of devices that had been used in the 1950s and 60s, Warburg's manometer and things like that to, to redo some of these experiments, learn how to work with enzymes again. And um, they, they returned to kind of his, his basic science and, uh, you know, they, they sort of synthesize it, I would say, with, you know, the modern, you know, genetic understanding of cancer. Um, and, you know, as I alluded to before, you know, some of these genes that they had been calling, you know, oncogenes, you know, they, they discovered were actually controlling metabolism. You know, one famous example uh, that I write about in my book is this pathway called the PI3 AKT pathway. And one thing that, that's really remarkable is that um, when they start sequencing tumors, you find that uh, this pathway, you know, goes to mTOR as well is the most commonly mutated pathway in all of cancer. And it, and it turns out that, um, you know, this, this is the pathway, PI3K first and foremost, it, it's response to insulin. If you have hyperinsulinemia, you're activating this pathway in the same, in much the same way that a mutation would activate this pathway. And when you get a mutation in this pathway, it actually, you know, just causes the insulin to be more effective in stimulating it. So, you know, it turned out that all this revival of Warburg pointed back, you know, to the insulin story. And that was a piece that Warburg never had. He didn't really understand the insulin component of it. You know, he died too soon to fully understand that there were some clues that he could have picked up on. Uh, but, but to me, that's where the synthesis lies is sort of discovering that these oncogenes that are so commonly mutated are the very ones that respond to insulin. And it just makes sense. You know, insulin is, is a growth factor. And if your blood is filled with a growth factor, it's gonna cause things to grow. Yeah, and that's really interesting. I the first time I heard about you know the insulin theory of obesity was through Gary Tobbs, and I know he talks a lot about that. Has he done any um, any research or looking into um, the fact the effect that that has on cancer? Yeah, I mean Gary, he uh, you know he's written about cancer uh, as well. He hasn't done a whole book on it, but he's mentioned it in, in some of his other discussions, and um, you know he he's written about some of the same things that I've written about. And I think he, you know, I don't want to put words in, into his mouth, but I think he, he looks at it through a similar framework, uh, which is, you know, his, his big question is what happened to the world? You know, why did everybody go from being, you know, relatively healthy weight to relatively overweight? And, and I don't just mean, I shouldn't say overweight, I should say, metabolic syndrome, because it's really people that are thinner as well, seem to, to have signs of this metabolic syndrome. Uh, you know, I, I certainly did uh, when I was in, in my 30s, I had elevated triglycerides. So it's really all of us. And, you know, and the question is, what what happened? What changed? And, you know, why did that seem to lead to more obesity, more diabetes, more cancer, and so on and so on. And, and so I think Gary also, you know, thinks that it's the insulin, you know, a lot of people think obesity is driving cancer. And it's true that there are various, you know, <clears throat> hormones that, you know, are, are affected by the obese state and inflammation. But ultimately, I think Gary thinks and, and I think that it's, it's really the insulin driving both simultaneously, which is, you know, the key to this story.
Um, yeah, I would agree with that. And it's it's like what we went back to earlier, you know, just talking about looking at inflammation and metabolic dysregulation all as kind of the same group of things causing this. Yeah. I mean, um, you could you could point the finger at sugar or insulin either way. You could say that um, insulin is directly causing cancer by causing these growth effects, or you could say it's causing cancer by causing obesity, which in turn is causing cancer. And, you know, either way, when you go back enough steps, you get back to the insulin. Before that, I think you get back to, to sugar and high carbohydrate diets. I mean, one of, one of the interesting questions Gary talks about and, you know, is whether, you know, if you took all the sucrose out, if you took all the sugar out, would you still have all these metabolic problems just eating carbohydrates? I mean, there are societies that have eaten plenty of carbohydrates without the sucrose, without the sugar and have done okay. But once you, you know, that's what he writes about in his book, The Case Against Sugar. Once you put the sugar into the equation, then you start to rapidly see this metabolic derangement start to set in. But, but then again, you know, another interesting question about all this is, let's say you have metabolic syndrome and you have elevated insulin, you know, is it just, if you just take the sugar out, is that enough? And it seems, you know, that if you already have metabolic syndrome, then you have to also cut back on some other carbs usually to, to reverse it. You know, some people fast, some people go keto, you know, people do different things. And, um, you know, I think anything, you know, anything's valid if you're getting that insulin down. And have you faced, I mean, you know, writing something like this, have you, so the subject of nutrition can be very um, polarizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and have you faced much backlash from kind of propagating these ideas? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, really, my book is not a prescriptive book. I don't say you should do this, or you should do that. I just try to talk about the science. And I really, my, you know, my sort of grand conclusion is that, uh, you know, we really have to be careful about sugar, sucrose, you know, and, and so that that's something that I think most people, you know, matter which side of the nutrition debates you're on, I think most people, you know, disagree. I mean, most people agree that, you know, that sugar is not a good thing. So I don't think my book is that, um, you know, controversial in that respect. But um, one uh, complaint I got, you know, from somebody who uh, hadn't read the book, but I, I thought it was a, a fair concern, which is that um, they thought I was advocating the ketogenic diet as a cure for cancer. And, and I had to be very clear. I don't say that in the book. And, and I wanted to be clear to that person and, and to any listeners that I don't think the ketogenic diet is, is any kind of miracle cure for cancer. I'm actually in my book, I'm talking about prevention. And, and I do think there's some very interesting, promising science about how, you know, restricting carbohydrates for some cancers, or maybe restricting certain amino acids for other cancers might be used in conjunction with specific therapies and make them more effective. And I, I do think it's promising, you know, it'd be one more tool in the oncologist toolbox. Um, there was actually a big article on science in this recently. So it's become sort of mainstream, but uh, I don't, you know, I think it's important not to overhype keto as a cure for cancer because, you know, there are some really remarkable stories online of people with particular brain cancers, you know, going completely keto and, and having remarkable success. And, and I admire those people for sharing their stories, but uh, you know, the science just isn't there yet. We need more research before making any kind of bold claim. So yeah, I think that that's the only sort of controversy I've encountered thus far. And, and I do think it's a fair point. Yeah, absolutely. And just to kind of 
piggyback on that. I think um, a lot of the studies that are out there right now, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they've been done looking at um, the effect of the diet along with other therapies that are going on. So they're also receiving treatment. And then this is just an adjunct to that. And like you said, um, I think there's like some cancers like the leukemia, lymphoma that might not act in this way and it might not be as effective. So it kind of does depend on the cancer. Is that right? Yeah. No, I mean, that's really where the field is heading is sort of targeting, you know, different cancers, you know, according to sort of being able to identify what type of nutrients they're thriving on, what type of nutrients they need to replicate and, and to sort of, you know, alter the diet to restrict that particular nutrient. So it's still, you know, and as you, what you said is correct, it's generally being studied in the context of an add-on to, to other therapies. So I, I consider it still very early days and, you know, I don't think we want to get ahead of the science, but it, it does strike me that, um, you know, there's so many, you know, almost mind-boggling and expensive cancer drugs that are approved where, you know, they're probably, you know, they keep people alive, you know, maybe for another month or two, they're probably less effective than some of these dietary interventions, but, um, you know, two wrongs don't make it right. We don't, <laughs> don't want to get ahead of the science, but um, I think that, um, you know, the real scandal in my mind is not, you know, a growing interest in diet, but the type of cancer drugs that, that are approved and are, you know, really bankrupting our society without really, you know, making a meaningful impact on people's survival. Yeah, and, and what would be your, um, I guess, takeaway or, or I guess like outlook for the future as far as um, where the science is headed with this? Like what, what do you foresee becoming of, of these theories and these experiments and what have you yeah. come across in your investigation? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I, I mean, there's one, there are a bunch of different studies going on in terms of the therapy. One that I find particularly interesting is that um, there's a scientist named uh, Lou Cantley, uh, Lewis Cantley at Weill Cornell, who has uh, really pioneered a lot of the study. I mean, he was the one who discovered this PI3K uh, <coughs> enzyme and, uh, you know, he's working on, on research now, which, you know, the problem is if you block this PI3K enzyme and it makes the cell resistant to insulin because that's the enzyme that, you know, responds to the insulin. So then you have elevated insulin. So that doesn't work, but the combination of blocking this pathway and ketogenic diet, uh, you know, lowering the insulin is, is an interesting area of investigation, but, um, you know, it's too soon to, to say much at this point, but I personally, my, my hope is that, uh, the takeaway from, from my book will be on, on prevention and recognizing that, um, you know, a very significant percentage of our cancer burden may be driven by hyperinsulinemia and that, you know, right now, I think there's this feeling of, uh, you know, just people sort of feeling hopeless about cancer, you know, the rates have been so high for so long, but if this hypothesis, which I think has a ton of evidence is that hyperinsulinemia is driving it, then it's really quite hopeful because, you know, through you know, various strategies, including CrossFit and getting, you know, into shape, we might be able to, you know, to really restore metabolic health and, and prevent cancer at the same time. So that's where I see the optimism. Um, and, and that's what I, you know, I hope people will take away from the book. And that's an excellent point, because by just following these principles, which you could argue that we should be eating this way anyways, you know, regardless of, of wanting to prevent that, because we're in a huge obesity epidemic right now, right? I mean, our country is so obese and 
if we're implementing things like this, it's overall impacting our metabolic health. It'll decrease the rates of cardiovascular disease and all sorts of complications. Infectious disease also. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, um, sometimes the, you know, there's so many different conditions that are, are linked to insulin resistance that, um, you know, it's really a remarkable thing that if you cure this underlying metabolic state, you can improve, you know, so many, you know, you improve your odds uh, against, you know, just literally dozens of different diseases. So, you know, it, it seems almost too good to be true. And that's why it's hard, you know, for people that haven't looked at the science, I think it's, you know, it seems hard to believe, but, um, you know, uh, there's a book, Why We Get Sick by Benjamin Beekman. I don't know if you've seen it, where he really just maps out all the conditions that are related to insulin resistance and it, it, it's mind boggling. So, and again, it's, it's, also really hopeful that, you know, rather than trying to tackle 20 different conditions, if we can fix this underlying metabolic syndrome, then, you know, it could be really, a, you know, a health revolution, but it's, you know, if you walk through the grocery store just once, you appreciate the challenge ahead of us, you know, there's, it's, we have a long way to go. Absolutely. Have you seen anything um, looking at, you know, intermittent fasting, um, versus, you know, just being on a low carb or ketogenic diet without periods of fasting is one better than the other, in your opinion? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I personally, I don't know enough to really answer that question. You know, all I can say is that, you know, anecdotally, you know, I've seen many people do, do really well with both. Um, you know, I sort of follow these conversations online, but, um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, I don't think all diets are the same, but I think that uh, if you're having success, then, you know, stick with what you're doing. If, you know, if intermittent fasting is working for you or keto is working for you, then, you know, by all means, stick with it. And also, you said before that you had um, yourself the kind of in your 30s had experienced you were kind of having health issues. And yeah, I guess what, how did you kind of turn that around? What was the, the impetus to sort of take a deeper look at that? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. I uh, started where um, you know, I went to the doctor and uh, I think I was, you know, maybe in, in around age 30. And I uh, said, you have elevated triglycerides. And I said, they're pretty high, but you know, not nothing to panic about. And I said, do I have to do anything? He's like, no. And, you know, he was a good doctor. I like him. I feel, I feel guilty saying this, but uh, you know, just he didn't really see it as, you know, it's just everybody sort of had elevated triglycerides still, still do. He didn't see it as a big deal. So I didn't think, think about it too much, but it, you know, it was in the back of my mind that I'm, I'm relatively young. I'm feel like I'm relatively healthy. And like, I have this interesting marker here, like what, what's going on. And um, I don't think I really, you know, thought about it very much until, um, you know, maybe it was, it was reading Gary Taub and I, you know, I started to read more after that and seeing that actually elevated, triglycerides, uh, in particular, the ratio of triglycerides to HDL are, actually correlates better uh, with cardiovascular disease and a lot of problems than the LDL. So that was kind of, kind of a surprising uh, wake up call for me realizing that. Um, but, uh, you know, I have no question that, uh, you know, I look at pictures of myself that, um, you know, I was one of these sort of skinny on the outside, but fat on the inside types. It's this, it's not actually the fat that, um, you know, subcutaneous appears to be relatively 
safe and you know doesn't seem to cause this metabolic harm but it's you know the visceral fat that you know gathers around the organs um which you know starts to cause this metabolic disruption and uh you know i think it's, it's very clear that i had that and um you know I, I think that in my case you know going removing carbohydrates and, and sugar from my diet re reversed it relatively quickly Yeah, that's awesome. And I think it's, it's really sad that you had to go to the doctor and then research on your own how to fix the problem that they didn't even see as a problem, right? But then, but then you found a way and now you're using that to kind of make a big change. Yeah. Throughout, it took you like, I think it's been five years you were working on the book, right? Yeah, yeah. During that time, did you change anything you were doing or were you already kind of on that path going into it? Uh, I, I was already, you know, somewhat low carb, but I went from little sugar to <laughs> very little sugar, because the more you look at the sucrose science, the, the scarier it gets. One of the things that surprised me uh, was when I started working on the book five years ago, I thought the whole story of sugar was actually, you know, sugar driving insulin, insulin driving cancer. But in more recent years, there's actually evidence that the sugar itself, uh, the fructose, is actually driving this Warburg metabolism can't get, you know, most of it ends up in the liver, but it can actually get in, you know, it gets really into the weeds, but you can actually get fructose in, into colon cancer and it is metabolized in such a way that it actually allows more glucose into the cell and turns on the Warburg metabolism. So, you know, one, one line that has stuck with me is uh, the researcher Richard Johnson put it as, you know, fructose is really a cancer's favorite food if it can get it. So, um, you know, I think it's even a little scarier than I thought uh, uh, in terms of sugar. So, so that's one thing that I've changed. And, you know, I, um, you know, I'm not as extreme or, you know, I'm not as aware of like my state of ketosis. It's, it's some people I read about online. I'm not checking my ketones or anything, but I, I try to be, you know, just conscious of staying in, in the range of what I imagine as a ketogenic diet. Did you notice that when you started eating this way that you felt better? Oh yeah. I mean, um, you know, first I, I should just say that, you know, I do think that it can make an enormous effect in terms of prevention if you keep your insulin low, but it's not all cancers that are related to obesity and insulin. And sometimes cancer really is bad luck, you know, so I don't want to overstate anything, but um, yeah. And just in terms of, of general health, I, um, you know, like so many people you hear about, you know, online and, uh, you know, just, you know, more energy, feeling more youthful, you know, I, I actually think that, you know, in my 40s, that my, you know, athletic performance is definitely better than in my late 20s and early 30s, you know, that's when I was starting to go downhill. So it's very, you know, surprising to me. And, you know, it's great. I, you know, I have a teenage son that I can you know, play basketball with and, and feel, you know, I, I, I don't mean to suggest that I'm, I'm in great shape by any means, you guys can see me now, uh, you know, but uh, uh, I feel, you know, much, much more sort of lively and athletic than, than I did when I was considerably younger. Yeah, I think one thing, you know, I hear people comment on a lot, and I've experienced myself too, with low carbohydrate diets, and especially with fasting is just that level of mental clarity you get too you know, and your ability to, to be productive and get stuff done. And you, it almost seems like you need less sleep as well, you know, and you're just, it, it is super efficient the next day. 
Yeah, I've noticed that needing less sleep, it, it is surprising. Uh, you know, I think sleep is important and healthy, but I, I definitely noticed I, I function better now than I used to on less sleep and, and certainly need fewer naps than I used to. You know, I used to like so many people eat like a big carb heavy lunch and then like my head would literally be drooping. Uh, and, and it still happens sometimes, but not, you know, it used to be like, you know, a regular thing every day, which, you know, makes sense. I mean, that's why they have, you know, siesta in countries because, you know, you eat a lot of carbs, you need to rest. And, and have other people uh, in, in your life, have you influenced other people in, in your life to sort of change their, and that's always hard personally, can you make change, but then, you know, how other people respond, respond to it sometimes is a little different. Yeah, yeah it's funny that um, it's, very, very hard for me to convince my own family. I like to joke that the dog is the only one in the family who listens to me. Um, but the truth, the truth is that, um, you know, they don't, they don't listen to everything I say. The kids still eat sugar and stuff, but uh, like they, they, they get it to some extent. Like when I was growing up, I was chugging Coke and chugging apple juice and orange juice. Like we don't have that in my house, but they do, they do still eat a lot more sugar and they like to, you know, come on, dad, just eat this, just eat this. So uh, I haven't convinced that many people, but I do have a, a lot of friends who, uh, you know, are interested in this stuff and, and ask me for advice. And I have to remind them that I'm, I'm a writer who does research on this stuff, but I'm not a doctor. And, you know, I, you know, I, I joke around about it, but, um, you know, of course I can't really give anybody medical advice, but um, I, you know, I like to talk about it, and uh, you know, a lot of a lot of people do ask me. Yeah, and I think the book obviously is going to be a huge influence on that, and where a lot of us, you know, self educate is through reading like this. That's how it sounds like you got into it. That's how I got into it, um, and just then once you get out there and you get exposed to the people that are writing about this stuff, just continuing to connect with them is a huge resource. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean. I would, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, I feel like there's some hubris in me, you know, not having a medical or scientific background going into this space, but, you know, I was inspired by, you know, Taubes and Nina Teichel and, and, and other people who went into this. And I think that, you know, obviously there's not having as much scientific training is obviously a big disadvantage in some ways, but I do think that being an outsider in some ways, you know, allows you to see things from a different perspective, which can be helpful. You know, my doctor is a great doctor. I liked him a lot, but you know, he had been through medical school. He had gotten his education and, you know, they said, you know, not to worry too much about triglycerides, focus on HCL. So, you know, I didn't have any biases going into it really. And, and so that that allowed me to, to look at it a little more clearly, I think than, uh, you know, if I had learned things in one way and been told that's the only way. Um, but also, you know, what, what I see my role as a journalist in doing and what I tried to do in this book is sort of connecting dots. You know, there's all this science about obesity correlating with cancer, that's epidemiology, observational studies, and there's all this stuff going on in the cancer cell. But these two communities don't really talk to each other. Uh, you know, it's like a different set of scientists. And so it really opens this space up for a journalist like me to come in and just ask questions about how these two things are related. And, you know, that that's where I think, you know, to the extent that I can add any value, that's where I think I can add value as sort of a, a dot connector. And, I, you know, my whole book in a way is, is sort of trying to connect dots in that way. And, uh, you know, it's 
everything I talk about is controversial to some extent, but um, you know, I, I hope I hope I made a convincing case. And where can people, where and when can people get the book? Uh, well, they can uh, get it wherever books are sold as of today. Today is actually the publication day. So it's exciting for me to uh, do this interview and, and uh, tell people about it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's um, wherever, wherever you can get a book, it should, I hope, <laughs> be available. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's been five years. So it's very exciting for me to, to have it out there. And I appreciate your interest in it. Yeah, congrats on that, by the way. Huge day. Where can people um, also find other information about you? Do you have a website or anything like that people uh, can go to? Sure, yeah. My website is uh, samapple.com. And um, I teach uh, science writing at Johns Hopkins uh, in the Master's uh, in Science Writing program. So uh, if you look that up, it's a, if anybody's interested in, in getting a Master's in Science Writing, it's a wonderful program. I encourage you to look it up there. A lot of doctors and scientists actually in, in the program uh, who you know want to learn to be better writers and better communicators. So um, encourage everybody to check that out as well. All right, guys, you got to check out this book, especially if you're interested in low carb diets, um, you know, fasting, its effects on cancer and metabolism, or if you're super into history like myself, it's a great book. Um, and check out Sam. I'll plug all of his stuff here in the show notes for you guys. So thanks for coming on, Sam. Okay, thanks so much. I really appreciate it.